Good morning, everybody. Want to uh, invite our children to Children's Church. And um, we're going to go ahead and I was joking with Lisa when I came up here. This is a positive, uplifting message, wasn't it? <laughs> the reading, but actually, it really is good news. We'll, we'll see that when we dig into it. There's really some good, good, hopeful message in there. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Um, Lord, we're grateful to be called into your presence, Lord, that you have drawn us together, not individually where we'd sit and, and worship alone, but Lord, as a corporate body, seeing your work in others, seeing your gifts in others, being blessed by the gifts you've given to others, and drawing together. So Lord, as we draw now together around your word, we pray that you would bless us, that you would be with us. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and minds and fill us with this beautiful promise we have in your word. And so, uh, Lord, we ask you now to come and be with us as we do this, as we open, help my words to mean what you mean, and our, our hearts and our ears to hear what you have to say. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this week, there is an uh, article that's been kind of going around the internet, and it caught me by surprise because I didn't think this thing was possible. Um, there was an uh, engineer at Microsoft wrote a blog post, and he told a story about in 2005, there was a company called Mitre Corporation who created a laptop that ran Windows XP, and they started getting complaints because it would crash. And so when they began to investigate what was going on, what they found was Janet Jackson's 1989 video uh, for Rhythm Nation, if you played it on this laptop, would crash the laptop. Now, as a computer nerd and, and a technician, you know, an electronic guy for a long time, I'm like, that can't happen. Because all that's going on with decoding a video is you're taking digital information and turning it into pictures. There's nothing happening there that could corrupt a computer. Well, it gets weirder because it wasn't just you would crash that computer. If there was a similar computer sitting near it and you played that Janet Jackson video, it crashed both of them. Even though they weren't physically connected, no Wi-Fi, none of that. So what's going on? What the engineers finally figured out was there was a frequency in that song, in that video, that was at the same resonant frequency as the hard drive. So in those days, the old hard drives were split, spinning platters. They rotated at 5,400 RPM. And this song had a, a tune in it, a note, that would resonate at that same frequency and cause the hard drive to crash. That's why it would crash it on the laptop that was playing it or one next to it. So what did they do? What, what could you do about this? Well, they couldn't recall all the, lap, all the computers and replace all the, the hard drives. It would cost them a fortune. So they came up with a simpler answer. They, they issued a patch to all the computers that when the audio was played, it would filter out that frequency. That was the only thing it did was it took out that one frequency. So the joke was somewhere those computers, you know, th th they're still in that company, this patch, and nobody knows what it's there for. And they're still removing that frequency from the computers. But that, that was something that was kind of interesting is, is this thing that somebody wanted, something that would be desirable. Now, Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation's not my cup of tea, but, you know, that's just my preference. It was a huge hit. Somebody wanted that. Somebody would play it, and it would destroy them. It would destroy their laptop. What Peter is going to tell us today is he's going to say something similar for us. There is something that we might desire, something we might want that's going to sneak in and destroy what he's been telling us to do, which is to grow in grace. He's going to warn us. He's going to give us that filter to take that one frequency out so that we won't crash and burn. Now, the way he begins is he starts the sentence with, but false prophets arose among them, uh, the people. 
So why does he start with the false prophets? Well, remember what he did in chapter one. Chapter one, his, his goal, his point is, I want you to grow in grace. How do you grow in grace? God has given you everything you need to grow in grace through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. As you know more about Jesus, you will grow in grace. And he's given you these great and tremendous promises. And as you hold on to those great and tremendous promises, you will grow in grace. You'll participate in the divine nature. You, you'll get the blessings that God has to offer humanity. And then the next part, he talks about these virtues that we have to really strive to grow in. God's given us what we need. Now, here's what you have to, to, to strive to grow in. And what we saw last week was we have a sure hope that we're actually going to do this. Because he says, make your calling and election sure. God has chosen us from the foundations of the world to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what our election the purpose of our election is, is to become more like Jesus. So since you have been elect, since you have been called, you're guaranteed that you're going to grow in grace. And then he says something really curious. He says, but we have the prophetic word made more sure. That's how he ended the chapter. And what was that about? Well, what he's saying is, Peter says, I'm not going to be around forever. I know I'm going to die. Jesus made that clear to me. I want you to have something sure that you can hold on to and remember this by. So you have the information you need about Jesus. Where does he point us? He points us right to the scriptures. Turn to the Bible. This is where you'll get what you need to grow in grace. We have the prophetic word made more sure. And then he says, but false prophets arose in those days. There has always been this existential threat to God's people from false people, from liars. So when you read through the Old Testament, when you read especially Kings and Chronicles, you'll run into these false prophets. They're there. Um, I just finished the book of Jeremiah, and I think there's a, a perfect example of one of these false prophets there. It's just a glowing example. In Jeremiah 28, we meet a man named Hananiah. And Hananiah comes to the king. Uh, well, let me set up the situation before I tell you what he says. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar has come against Judah surrounded Jerusalem, breached the walls, is beginning to carry things away, the treasures away from the temple, has carried some people into exile. Jeremiah has been saying, lay down your arms, go out to Nebuchadnezzar, and you'll live. This is God's judgment on you. We run into Hananiah in chapter 8. Hananiah comes to the king and says, within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back this to this place, the king of Judah and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. This is the announcement he made. Two years, everybody's coming back. We're going we're gonna to be fine. Don't worry about it. Well, Jeremiah had been preaching something extremely different, the exact opposite. In the previous chapter, he had said, thus says the Lord, do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you saying, behold, the vessel of the Lord's house will shortly be brought back from Babylon. For it is a lie they are prophesying to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. So now when we read this, from our perspective, we go, Jeremiah was right. Right? I mean, look at Daniel. That's exactly what happened. Nebuchadnezzar carried him off. Jeremiah said, you're going to be in exile 70 years. Daniel says, 70 years is up. Time to come back. So we know between the two, we know Jeremiah was the right prophet to listen to. Put yourself back in the siege of Jerusalem in that day. You're standing in Jerusalem and you hear a man who's a, who claims to be a prophet come up and say, two years and we're all back. And you hear another prophet say, lay down your arms and go out. Which prophet do you listen to? How do you know? 
If you say, well, I'll just wait the two years, and if he's wrong, then I'll obey. That's not obeying. You've decided to not do anything, which is you've decided to decide with Hananiah. And if you say, well, I'll just go out to the king of Babylon, and if the two years is wrong, if he's wrong, then two years I'll be brought back anyway. Then you've decided to disobey what Jeremiah said. So how do you know which one to do? You know, we have the benefit of looking back through history. How do you, how do you figure that out? Well, Peter is going to actually give us a clue on how to figure this stuff out, because he says, just like there were false prophets then, who are giving false information and telling you wrong things, he goes on and he says, just as there will be false teachers among you. There were pro false prophets, there will be false teachers. Now, when he puts it in the future tense, that doesn't mean that there were none in his day. As you read through the rest of the, um, the book, really, but chapters two and three, there were false teachers in his day, and he was combating them. I think he puts it in the future tense to say, this is going to continue to happen. There will be false teachers who show up. How do you recognize them? How do you, how do you find out who they are? Because what they're doing is they're going to be a threat to your growth and grace. So let's, let's make sure we understand who they are. So here's how he goes. He explains it to, he says, these false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Destructive heresies. Now, today's culture, they, they tend to say that words are violence. Words are not violence. Words are words. If, if you say words are violence, you're diluting violence, which is something very physical, very real, very tangible. So when we talk about words not being violence, that doesn't mean words are not destructive, that words can't hurt. In this case, he says they straight secretly bring in destructive heresies. They bring in false words. And words can be destructive. They can destroy your walk with Christ. So these false teachers, they're secretly bringing in destructive heresies. What kind of destructive heresies? Even denying the master who bought them. Now, if somebody was to walk into this church and say, hey, I'm a new teacher in town, got a great message for you. Jesus was just a really nice guy, totally misunderstood. We'd run him out on a rail. He's denying the divinity, the, the deity of Christ. He's denying Jesus' place as the Messiah. Or if somebody came in and said, you know, yeah, Jesus, wow, really an amazing uh, miracle worker. He was Gabriel, the, might, the archangel, come in the flesh. Again, we'd throw him out. That's not secretly bringing in destructive heresies. That's overtly bringing in destructive heresies. So what does he mean by secretly bringing in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them? Well, John Piper helped me on this quite a bit because he looked at that phrase, master who bought them. He said, what does that mean? It's, isn't that a weird way to say that? They deny Jesus. No, they deny the master who bought them. So what he did is he went and he looked through the rest of the New Testament and he said that idea of being bought in a positive sense like we are, has to do with sexual immorality more often than not. That Don't you know that you have been bought with a price? Therefore, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, don't indulge in those things. That's kind of the picture. So that's where he takes us. The, uh, the image I like to use for that is you have been bought with a price. That's not necessarily just talking about being redeemed from your sins. That would be more like the kinsman redeemer has come and bought you back, bought back the land. You have been bought with a price. You are a servant. You are a slave to a master. What does that master get to tell you to do? Any darn thing he wants. That's how that works. Jesus even said that in Luke 17, he told the parable and he said, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at table. 
Will he not rather say to him, prepare me supper, dress properly and serve me. And while I eat and drink, afterward, you will eat and drink. So that's the idea. This is the master telling the servant, this is what you're going to do. You're going to work in the field all day, and then you're going to prepare my meal. Then you clean yourself up, and then you serve me. And then when I'm done, you can eat. That's the master who bought them. That's the picture there is Jesus is the master who bought us. If he tells us to do something, are we being good and faithful servants if we go, yeah, I don't want to do that. I think that's what's happening here is these, these false teachers who are bringing in destructive heresies are telling you basically, yeah, you don't have to really listen to Jesus. He's, he's the master who bought you, yeah, but we're, we're going to do something a little different. Jesus owns you body and soul. And so he can command you to do whatever he pleases. The good news is he's not like that wicked master saying, yeah, too bad. You've been working all day. Feed me first. He's a loving master who died for us. So don't you even more want to obey him? Listen to where this goes. In verse two, he says um, that they bring in destructive heresies, denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves destruction. We'll come back to the destruction in a minute. He, he's going to say more about that. Um, but he says in verse two, and many will follow their sensuality. The, the picture there is this idea of sensuality. When we think of that word sensuality, we tend to think of sexual um, license, sexual looseness. But sensuality, the word behind it, actually means a little bit more than sexual. It's, it's most often pictured in the New Testament as a sexual thing, because that's the most graphic way of picturing it. But it has more meaning than that. For example, um, there was a, uh, um, a Greek historian who wrote about uh, Perseus, and he said, unlike his father, he stayed away from the lack of control, both concerning women and concerning drink. That's that same word. So it, it was a lack of control concerning women, but also drink. So it was this idea that you're not controlling yourself. And what was one of the fruits of the spirit? What was one of the virtues we were supposed to grow in from chapter one? Self-control. So these people are coming in with their destructive heresies, and they are saying, you don't really have to follow what Jesus said. They would never say it that way because we, we again, throw them out. But they're demonstrating it. They're living in a way so that many will follow in their sensuality. Many will live that self-indulgent, self-pleasing life. They will follow whatever they, they desire. And he says, because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. When you think about people outside the church and you ask them, what is Christianity? When you think of evangelicalism or Christianity, What's the first thing that comes to mind? I can't remember where I read this. I, I searched for it. And I couldn't find it. Somebody said in their college ministry, whenever they'd ask a college student, what do you think of when you think of uh, evangelicals or of Christianity? The first thing they said was Westboro Baptist. That's the, the Baptist church of less than 50 people, I believe, most of them from the same family who show up with signs that say God hates fags. That's what they think of. Now, that's blaspheming the truth, because our message is not God hates. It is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should follow him would escape death. It's a message of hope, but this one distorted view blasphemes the truth. I, I can remember hearing from other people when you said, what do you think of Christianity? You say, oh, I'm a Christian. And they go, you mean like the big haired people on TV? They're thinking of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, folks. It's like, 
No, not that. They are, again, blaspheming the truth because what they're doing is they're distorting it. They're, they're twisting it. They're saying, God wants you to be healthy, happy, and rich, man. That, that's, and if you just send me some money, he's going to know you're serious and he's going to bless you. That is exactly what he's saying here. They're going to they're gonna distort people, appeal to their sensuality, and wind up making people blaspheme the truth. Go, I don't want anything to do with that. It's like, hail and amen, brother. I don't want anything to do with that either. What about the sexual nature, the, the sexual portion of it? The, the one that I thought of, I was really impacted by that podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Where Mark Driscoll began to unravel and begin to come apart was he preached a sermon series on the Song of Solomon, and it was not family-friendly. It was graphic. Now, to be fair, in the Song of Solomon, there are some graphic scenes. There is some, some things that we uptight evangelical types are a little uncomfortable with. It's in the Bible. Deal with it. What he did is he delighted in it. He celebrated it. He, he, he drew it out. And where it got really bad is toward the end of his career at Mars Hill, he wrote a book called Real Marriage, which his staff said, please don't publish this. What his message was is, women, your role is to satisfy your husband in every way possible. Whatever your husband wants, you are not allowed to deny him, even in sexuality. And so in that podcast, there were interviews with women, and they talked about how destroying that was to them because they were like, I don't feel comfortable doing this. My husband wants to do it, but if I don't do it, I'm disobeying God. And so they were racked with guilt. What Driscoll did is he took a distorted, perverted, partial piece of how marriage is supposed to work. First Corinthians 7 says, hey, wives, your body is not your own. It belongs to your husband. And he stopped preaching. The rest of that sentence is, husbands, your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to your wife. The idea is this mutual coming together is, hey, I would like this, but I'm not comfortable with that. And how do we fit this together? And what is us? How are we going to do it? Driscoll distorted and perverted that. The way of truth was blasphemed because people would point at that and go, that's complementarianism. That's the idea that men and women are different and have complementary roles. And it wasn't. It was a perversion of it. All three of these errors that I, that I just kind of picked up as an example were appealing to that sensuality, that, that lack of self-control. I want to be rich and happy and have all of these great things, and I want the health, and so I'm going to follow that because that's what I want. The Westboro Baptist thing is I'm, I'm going to go out and tell everybody how much God hates them because we're the only ones that are right, and anybody who doesn't agree with that's pride. That's a deep-seated pride that I'm right. And Driscoll, he wasn't interested in real marriage. He was interested in his own sexual preferences and twisting them out of Scripture. And so when, when that sensuality is appealed to and people follow that, the world sees that and goes, that ain't right. And they're correct. It's not. It's, it's being led away to follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth is blasphemed. You wind up with all this noise. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not saying you'll be health, wealthy, and, and prosperous if you give money to my church. I don't want anything from you. I want to tell you something. I want to give something to you. That was our experience when we would go out to ABC campus and set up a tent and say, hey, good luck on finals. You, you need some water. You need a pen. People would come up and go, what do you want? Nothing. We're just here to bless you. That, that is trying to cut through that noise of, but the guys on TV all want something from me. I don't. That is 
following the sensuality will lead to the truth being blasphemed. And so in verse three, he presses on. He says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So how do you recognize that false prophet, that false teacher who comes in? Because eventually it comes down to me. It's all about me, you guys. I'm, on, I'm here to tell you the truth. You can't listen to anybody else. It's about me. And, and it's going to turn into greed. Greed will be at the root of that. That with their greed, they will exploit you with false words, with distorted, twisted truth. And their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So here's what Peter's doing here. He, he's pointed out, here's this existential threat to your growth in grace. What did he tell us in the previous chapter we needed to do? We had to have an accurate knowledge of who Jesus was, and we have his precious and very great promises. He's going to demonstrate that to us here. How do you fight against these false teachers? By understanding who Jesus is and clinging to his great and precious promises. Their condemnation from long ago is not asleep, and their destruction is coming. In this world where there's a lot of fear, in, in America right now, there's a lot of fear. If you don't fear what I fear, then you must love what I hate. And, and so fear kind of becomes the driving thing. What Christians, we, we, we need to do is we need more eschatology. And there's a lot of difference of opinions on eschatology. That's fair. The eschatology we need is Jesus is coming back. There will be a judgment. So when these people come and they exploit you and they try to appeal to your greed and your sensuality and come on, join me in this. No, you can resist it because their destruction is coming. Judgment will happen. Jesus will return, the dead will be raised, and there will be a judgment of righteousness and a judgment of the wicked. That's the promise that we have. That's a promise that we can hold on to. So as we're facing these temptations and these trials, we can say, from fear, I don't want to be judged, but also from, from joy, they're not getting away with this. These people that they've, they've built and they, they've deluded, they're not getting away with it. Their destruction is not idle. So verse 4, he says, if, if God did not spare the angels, what he does in this next section is Peter says, what did I just tell you? Where did I just point you to have confidence? I told you to go to the scriptures because we have that prophetic word made more sure. What he wants us to find in those scriptures is Jesus Christ. So look at what he does here in this next section. He has three ifs and then a then. And what he does is he appeals to the Old Testament. He says, look at these examples. Follow with me in this, and let me show you exactly what this great and tremendous promise is. So he goes with three ifs. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, pause. We'll get to the then in a few. What he's saying is the angels rebelled against God. What was his response? He created hell for them. He's going to cast them into hell. Now, he, Peter makes it sound like the rebellious angels were all cast into, uh, put in chains and gloomy darkness and held until the day of judgment. Well, we know that can't be right because Jesus was going around casting them out of people. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think what Peter's doing here is, is he's, he's trying to picture for us their condemnation is so sure that that's how he's talking about it. The reason I say that is Matthew 25, Peter, or, uh, um, uh, Jesus, when he's talking to people and warning them, he says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was made for the, the, uh, the devil and his angels. Think about for a moment the, uh, the, the uh, demoniac and garrison 
Jesus crosses the lake. He gets there. This man who was breaking chains and cutting his body and couldn't be contained and controlled comes up to Jesus and says, what are you doing here? Are you here to cast us into the pit before our time? And Jesus asks, who are you? And he says, we're legion because there's a bunch of us in here. So when Jesus tells them to come out of the man, they say, don't send us to the pit. Don't send us to hell yet. Let us go into those pigs. And so Jesus permits them. They go into the pigs. Pigs go charging off the cliff, drown. And now those spirits are out roaming around looking for somebody else to bother. Why did Jesus do that? Why didn't he just go, nope, to the pit now? Because it wasn't the time yet. The time is coming when they will be cast there. And guess what? Jesus is saying that was prepared for them. But to those on his left, the goats, those who didn't know him, they're heading to the same destination. So he picks up this picture of the judgment of the angels. That's the first if. The second if, verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the earth, upon the world of the ungodly. Pause. The then is coming. So what he's doing is he's looking back to Genesis chapter 6. The world, sin entered the world in Genesis 3. By the time we get to chapter 6, it is rampant. People are violent. They're self-indulgent. They're beating each other up, tearing each other up. And God looks and says, I can't leave it like this. They're going to destroy themselves. So what he does is he preserved Noah and he brought judgment on the world. So here's the promise. God is aware of the unrighteousness of the world and he will judge it. Here's the better promise. God will preserve you. He will keep you safe. He knew how to deliver Noah from the flood that was coming on the earth. And so Noah then is a herald of righteousness. So as he's building the ark, he's preaching to these people, repent, turn, come and join me on the ark. But these self-indulgent people are not going to do it. And so the flood comes and wipes out humanity, except for these eight people in the ark. God could preserve and will preserve who he's wanting to. So this is that picture from the scriptures. Here's the promise. God can preserve the righteous and he can bring judgment on those who, are, who don't follow him. The, the, the uh, next if, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them with, to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So now he jumps forward in, in um, Genesis and we get to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is another view. There's, you, you have to remember the context this is in, right? So the next one, God comes to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He's, he tells Abraham, I came to see if it's as bad as I've heard. Of course it is. He's God. He knows that. He's inviting Abraham into this. And so he comes to Abraham and he says, shall I do something and not tell my servant Abraham? I'm coming to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's when Abraham enters into this, this, this bargaining with him. What if there are 50 righteous people there? God says, then I won't destroy the city. What if there's, there's missing 10? What if there's only 40? Will you still destroy? No, I, I won't destroy it. He gets them down to 10 people. If there are 10 righteous, and, and God says, if I find 10 righteous, I won't destroy the city. What he finds there was one righteous, which was Lot. So he escorted Lot and his family out and destroyed the city. Again, this is God is aware of the unrighteousness. He is aware of this. In this case, it was a sexual sin. When the angels show up to destroy the city, the city comes out and says, hey, send these guys out. We want to know them in the biblical sense. So this was that self-indulgence again. This was people who are going to just do whatever felt good. 
So if God is able to do that to Sodom and Gomorrah, and then he turns it around in verse 7, and if he rescued righteous Lot, how was Lot righteous? I've heard so many sermons on how horrible Lot was, and yet Peter here calls him righteous. So guess what? Lot was righteous. Even if we don't like what he did, he was righteous. He rescued righteous Lot, who, great, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. There's that sensuality, that self-indulgent part again. And then in parentheses in verse 8, he says, For that righteous man lived among them day after day. He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. That feels like us. Is, is we're living in a culture, especially here in America, because America was founded on at least Christian ideals, Christian moral ethics, if not uh, uh, blatant Christianity. And so now as we watch our culture begin to cast these things off and drift further and further, it's, it's difficult for us. It's, it's grieving to see this happen. In the 1960s and 70s, um, no-fault divorce. And the church is going, no, wait, you don't want to do that. <laughs> the, the marriage the, is the foundation of society. You don't want to turn it into something you can just breeze in and out of. 1970s, um, abortion for any reason. You don't want to do that. We're killing the innocent if we do this. 1990 or 80s, we came into, well, you know, sex is now free. We can get an abortion if it doesn't work. And we become self-indulgent and sexual revolution. Let's, let's party on. And so today we're, we're seeing these same kind of things, these departures. We don't get to define our bodies. God did that. And yet I may look like a man, but I'm a woman because I said I'm a woman. That's what I've said. I've determined. I'm, I'm, that is this idea of self-indulgence. I'm going to define what I do with my body. So we're watching the culture embrace this stuff. We shouldn't be alarmed and say, oh, where did, this has never happened. Believe me, the world has been much worse than it is now. It, it's been a lot worse, but we're grieved by that. And so like Lot, we're sitting in the, in the gate going, please don't do this. Please don't go there. You don't understand. It is not going to make life better. And yet we watch our culture go that way. And so like Lot, we're grieved. The hope that we have, here's how we can hold on to hope in the middle of this. God is aware of what's going on, and he will deliver righteous lot. He will deliver you and I. So as we are heralds of righteousness going, repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ, and God will accept you. Even if, like Noah, nobody joins us on the ark, we know God is still going to be faithful, and he will deliver the righteous. He, he's promised that. We have something better than Noah had. We had something better than Lot had. We have the full gospel. We have the prophetic word made sure. The gospel that we can go out and preach to the nations. And there is a full number of Gentiles that will be brought in, and then the end will come. So what, what Peter's doing here is he's pointing us to the scriptures, and he goes, here's the great and precious promise. Now hold on to this. And so the verse ends, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Nobody gets away with anything. Nobody. We may never know who killed this small child or who molested these people in, in, when they were in school or, or who uh, um, wound up San or, um, um, sterilizing Native women who came in for, for minor like a appendix surgery. We may never know who did all of those things. Nobody gets away with any of that. God's able to bring them into judgment and he's able to bring us to 
um, to uh, deliverance, to faith. So here's, the, here's what's going on. We're called to live or to uh, grow in righteousness, to grow in grace. He, he, we're, we're promised that. The way we do it is by knowing who Jesus is, by trusting his great and precious promises, and by adding to our virtues, virtue and virtue and virtue, and struggling through that, looking to the scriptures to have the faith to do that. And so what Peter has just done is he said, there is a tremendous threat to that. And how do you escape that threat? By doing what I already told you, which is stick to the scriptures. Stick to what God said. Look to these promises. Hold on to these promises. So if you're hanging on to the promises of Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus took your sin upon himself so that you don't have to bear that burden, and somebody comes in and goes, yeah, he, he, you don't have to obey him. <laughs> Why would I not want to? That's a growing in grace. So the threat is going to continue. Chapter two, it doesn't get much better. It's going to get more graphic. Chapter three is more a detail of what that threat is, what kind of things are they denying and, and threatening. And so this is the promise. This is the great and precious promise that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the, righteous, the unrighteous under punishment. We need more of that. That's the eschatology I'm talking about. That's what we have to hold on to. And so verse 10, he says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So they indulge in the lust of defiling passion. That's a, that uh, sensuality, licentiousness is how the older translations put it. We tend to think of that lust, but it's also despising authority, denying the master who bought them. I don't have to do that. Yeah, I know Jesus said that I'm not supposed to do that. I don't, I don't have to obey him. I'm saved by grace, man. If you tell me anything else, it's a distortion. It's a perversion. So we hang on to the great and precious promises. That's how we grow in grace. That's how we become more like Jesus. And we hold on to that promise that he knows how to keep us safe. He knows how to rescue us from that day. And so we can face the coming of Christ with hope, with anticipation. They're out there, you guys. There are bad teachers out there. Um, YouTube is littered with them. That is the fertile ground of some of the worst teaching you'll ever see in the, in the world and some really great stuff. So what Peter wants us to do is to measure that. Just like Jeremiah and uh, Hananiah, how do you tell the difference? You look at the message, look at the messenger. What, what Jeremiah said is when Hananiah made his announcement about two years and everything's going to be golden, what Jeremiah actually replied to that is, oh, amen. I hope that's true. I really hope that's the case. However, none of the prophets before ever said that, and I haven't said it. So I don't think that's going to be the case. So you have a demonstration in Jeremiah. Look to the scriptures. Look to what God has done. Look to the pattern. In Peter, we have the whole completed canon. How do you recognize those false teachers? Look to the scripture. Look to all the scripture. Don't let them stop in the middle of a verse and distort it for you. Read the whole thing. Know it all. Because that's how we're going to grow in grace. And that's our goal. That's what we want to do is grow to be more like Christ. Not looking forward to next week. <laughs> it's a lot of really bad news. It's more of the judgment on those people on what God's going to bring upon them. So it's, it's a little more difficult, I think, to find the positive message in there. But I think it's part of what we actually need to know. We need to realize what the eschatology for the unrighteous looks like and let that be the, the thing that propels us to live that godly life. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we're grateful that you have given us your scriptures, that you have given us your word. 
that you have made the prophetic word more sure to us, Lord, that we might hear and obey. Lord, when we think about the life that we have to live, the call, that we're called to live in this world and the, the struggle and the difficulty we face, the opposition that we receive, and Lord, those false teachers bringing blasphemy upon the way of truth. Lord, we pray that you would make us individually and as a church, as a body of Christ, as a, the church of the Antelope Valley, as your church across America, throughout the world, Lord, would you make us to be safe and righteous? Lord, that we would trust that you can deliver us. We don't have to look to worldly systems for deliverance. Lord, we know that you will preserve us. So Lord, meet us in that. And, and through that trust, through that promise that you've given us, this great and precious promise, help us to grow in grace and to be more like our big brother, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.